Welcome to Investors Chronicle Personal Finance Podcast. I'm Lenora Walters, and joining me today are Emma Ajiman, Personal Finance Writer at Investors Chronicle, and Paris Anand, Chief Investment Officer for Equities in Europe at Fidelity International. An attribute of funds that has come under increasing scrutiny is the fees they charge investors. Most funds have a set annual management charge, and a few controversially charge a performance fee on top of this. But asset manager Fidelity International has now introduced a third type of fee structure on a number of its funds, a variable management fee structure. Paris, what is a variable management fee structure? So essentially, you know, to, to, to make it very simple, it, it, it's rather than effectively charging a flat fee to uh, clients uh, based on, you know, as a sort of, let's say, a basis point charge of, of, of assets, uh, which, is, which is flat irrespective of performance, a variable management fee structure adjusts relative to the performance, the medium term performance that the client experiences in a strategy. So if the strategy is, is, is delivering, you know, a very good experience, to, to clients, the, the the management fee will kind of rise from its sort of base level. But 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 mo- most importantly, if the fund is going through a phase of underperformance, the the fee is actually discounted, so that so the client pays less. Okay, and why are you introducing this new fee structure? Well, I mean, really, Leonora, it's, it's really in response to a lot of the growing debate around the value of, of active funds and the value proposition of active funds, and certainly when considered uh, relative to uh, passive strategies. And, and and one of the things that you know we we really wanted to, to to look at was you know is there being enough innovation in in the charging structures, and so by having a pricing mechanism which aligns with client outcomes. We're trying to achieve two things. One is to really sort of align the revenues that the asset manager earns with, what, with, with how clients are experiencing, but also to really have a structure that we think hopefully uh, encourages uh, investors to stay the journey with active management and, and invest for, for longer periods. Okay. And how common is a, a variable management fee? So it's not it's really genuinely not that common. I think that you know we 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 would be the the first people to be introducing it on a on a broad scale across our across our active equity range. You know what's more common in the market as you alluded to was um what you could describe as asymmetric performance fees where there is a there is an upside uh, to to the amount that the asset manager earns based on delivering, you know, above a, above a preset performance threshold. Where where the the variable management fee structure that we've proposed uh, is different is that is that there's a kind of a symmetry there so we charge a, actually a lower base management fee than we would in our normal sort of flat flat rate funds and then we have a sort of a symmetric level up and down that the fund that the charge will, will will sort of range between depending on the performance of the um of the strategy so so really that it isn't that common there are one or two houses like uh, orbis is a good example you know where there where there is more innovation on fees but generally i think as an industry we haven't been as innovative on our charging structures as, as really we should be would you say that it's fairer than a conventional performance fee structure 
So I think that, that the fact of it sort of aligning with client outcomes or customer outcomes means that clearly there is that, that there is that element of fairness because, you know, you could say if you were being critical and those who have been critical about the, the, the charging structures for active management would say, well, you know, I'm paying exactly the same if I'm in a top performing strategy or I'm in an underperforming strategy. So, so that, that is certainly an, an element of fairness. But I think that one of the most important things about this uh, model for me is that the truth of it is for active managers, when you think about performance, performance will always go through phases of underperformance and outperformance as you go through a kind of a long journey with the strategy. And one of the things that we're trying to achieve with this variable management fee structure is that the market and, and, and that customers don't overreact to short-term periods of underperformance. And that, I think, is something which I think the industry tends to get wrong. It tends to overreact to short-term periods of underperformance. Um, so which of your funds um, are going to offer a share class with a variable management fee so we, we're going to roll this out on a, on a phase basis and 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 some of the the, the strategies where we're going to be rolling it out um, uh, initially is on some of what you would consider to be our sort of flagship funds so if you take the UK range for example it's funds like our special the UK special situations fund our global special situations fund the European fund you know those are the, those are the very sort of well held across our across our sort of customer base and so we've identified a sort of subset of funds across um, both are kind of what we describe as our onshore sort of OIT range as well as our as well as our sort of CCAV range of funds. And um, what's the time scale for rolling it out to other funds and indeed some of your investment trusts? So the first the first phase of the launch will will, will take place shortly. So we've kind of we're, we're sort of working through the the operational um, uh, procedures to get the variable management fee uh, set up, as well as the kind of the regulatory approvals that we need to launch the fund. As you can imagine, any time you do something innovative within the industry, it takes it takes a little bit of time. But the first phase of fund should be launched uh, within the, within the next sort of few months, and then as we sort of go through the year, we'll kind of do subsequent sort of phases of launches. I mean, what it will also help us show by doing this this in a phased way is really trying to understand sort of you know how the, how the market is, is is sort of receiving it and you know and sort of helping us to guide us towards what are the next the next funds we should be working on now how does the um, variable management fee compare to the fees on the older share classes of these funds which don't have it a variable element yeah, so essentially, I mean, if you if you take take the UK range for example, the base management fee for our, our UK funds on the clean share classes is about seventy five basis points, and so the base fee for the variable management uh, share classes will start at sixty five basis points, so ten basis points lower, and then that that will sort of vary, sort of plus twenty, minus twenty basis points from that. So at the at the, at the sort of top end, you know, it's it's eighty five basis points, and at, at the at the bottom end is forty five. Well, um, having a variable management fee make it harder for investors to compare the charges of um, these new share classes to the older ones, quite simply because it's variable and, um, you know, you don't have a set thing to compare. So, so I think I think what's fair, Leonora, is that, is that you know one of the challenges with a with a with a variable fee structure like this is is that point of what, what I would describe as point in time comparison. You see, because you know sometimes w- w- when we when we sort of discuss 
the the variable fee with with you know clients or other stakeholders they're, they're often talking about well you know under what circumstances am I paying more or under what circumstances am I am I am I paying less and I think that the that for customers what, what customers I think really need to do with with this um, um, charging structure is to kind of really sort of buy into the overall principle of it because because the fee is by its very nature variable and will and will change you know with the with the performance of the underlying fund so where people often make a mistake is they'll look at a certain pricing level and they'll think that's what I'm getting charged for the full year but they're not that's just a point in time observation so I think that you know for the customers who are want to have active strategies but like the idea of kind of alignment and a, a sense of a sort of a discount through phase of underperformance you kind of just need to buy into the overall proposition now um what about comparing them to um let's say um other funds i mean how how would you go about doing that so again i think you're you're you know what you're what you're faced with is is the challenge of saying that at any point in time they could compare favorably or less favorably um so the 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 you know, just because the of 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 how the the, the performance influences the level of the, the charge, what I would say is that you know the best thing for customers, the way to customers to think about this is that if I've if I've got a fund with a variable uh, fee, that I should expect to pay a little bit more if if I've if I've had a, an exceptional period of, of of outperformance, and I should expect to see a discount if I've been through a sort of a phase of underperformance, and those will be very clearly demonstrated on the fact sheets of of, of the fund. So it's it's not something. You know, it, it's just a different model. So therefore, you know, you've just got to sort of think. Well, I can't really compare it always to a flat fee model. I've got to just look at that fund that I own and just make sure that what what I expect to be happening in the charging structure is happening. Now, um, I spoke to a few analysts on this, um, and one of them, I think, playing devil's advocate to a certain extent, asks, "Why should you pay, say, for example, zero point forty five percent?" for significant underperformance of an index when you can actually buy an index tracker for 0.06%. Yes, I really understand why people ask that question. But but again, I'll come back to the point that I made earlier, which is that, first of all, when you think about a passive fund, right, a passive fund, whatever the charge is for a passive fund, it never has the capacity to deliver outperformance over time. So you're really not comparing apples with apples. When we look at any strategy, and you can sort of pick any fund that you like from the the top performing funds in any sector of the market, they will always go through phases of underperformance because they're really, especially some of the strongest funds that you can find from a performance perspective, is because they're not really structured to relative to a benchmark they're kind of almost structured as an as, as an absolute total return proposition and the performance is assessed relative uh, to, to a benchmark so again you know one of the things that i think we get wrong in our in our industry especially when it comes to active management is is too much attention to phases of underperformance in the short term and also to sort of phases of, of, of overperformance in the short term what really matters for investors is really the performance of their strategy over a, over a long period of time. Now, another change you recently announced concerns your policy on external research costs. Under new European regulations, asset managers have to say what the research costs of their funds are and choose whether to absorb them or pass them on to investors. Now, you were going to pass on the costs of external research to investors, but now you cover it yourselves. Why? So essentially, in the period before the sort of the MIFID regulations were introduced, you know, there were effectively sort of two models that one could one could adopt with respect to the funding the cost of external research. You know, one was effectively, you, you know, funding it through 
through commissions, um, uh, an additional sort of commission charged on client trades, and the other one was to absorb the cost of research. Now, one of the reasons that we selected, we initially selected this research payment account methodology is because for us as a global asset manager, we wanted a model that could be broadly applied across all of our clients, whether they were captured by MIFID II or whether they weren't captured by MIFID II. And it also, in our view, especially at that time, we thought that the industry would probably be split sort of somewhere, you know, kind of 50 50 between RPA and, and absorbing the costs, there were certain elements of that research payment account methodology, which was, you know, very similar to, to the model that we've been using in the past, and therefore something that we thought would be very, um, you know, as a preference, would protect our kind of existing investment process. So that was the reason that we initially went down down the RPA uh, road. Now, clearly, what has changed over the last sort of uh, three to six months is that what we had initially expected to be quite a sort of a split across the industry has really emerged as the industry really consolidating on this idea of absorbing external resources research cost, which meant that the the challenge of trying to implement an RPA was actually posing a burden on our clients. And that was never, you know, never our intention. So just trying to sort of respond very rapidly to, to what it means to have a to, to be an effectively a minority of one as a kind of a large asset manager, you know, um, uh, um, pursuing the RPA, we just we just elected to kind of you know uh, adopt the um, adopt the cost of external research. So, I mean, would you say was it just because of peer pressure? So it wasn't. It wasn't really peer pressure. It was really about understanding more deeply the consequence and impact on our end customers of, of pursuing the RPA. I mean, as an as an as a fund manager, as an as an active investor, you know, you should never be frightened of having an independent opinion on something. But I think that when it got to the point where it was we were finding that it was it was posing an additional operational reporting burden on our clients, that was not something that we expected to happen. And of course if they're doing it just for you and for nobody else that they're that they're sort of, you know, let's say, taking asset management services from, then it becomes an additional burden from them. So that was the point at which we ch- we decided to change our mind. Thank you, Paris. Some really helpful explanations. Um, and see the website at www.investorschronicle.co.uk for further information on Fidelity's new variable management fee. Holding your investments within an individual savings account, or ISA for short, offers a number of tax benefits. But no amount of tax relief will compensate for poor performance, so you have to pick the right investments to hold within your ISA. And to help you do this, this week's Investors Chronicle includes a supplement in which we have highlighted funds, investment trusts, passive funds and shares, which could be good investments for your ISA portfolio. Emma, you've been putting some of these together. So first of all, why can funds be good investments to hold within an ISA? Um, There are a couple of reasons, Leonora. By holding one active fund, you can actually get access to a diversified portfolio of dozens or even hundreds of securities. And funds can also help you get exposure to areas which are more difficult for private investors to access directly, like emerging markets, for example. Now, what kind of funds have you suggested? Well, I've looked at five main areas which should cover most investors' needs. So funds for growth, funds for income, wealth preservation, diversification and contrarian opportunities. OK, a number of useful areas and with choppy markets, wealth preservation in particular. So what would be an example of a fund you suggested for wealth preservation? 
One example is Old Mutual Global Equity Absolute Return Fund, and it aims to grow your capital while controlling risk and achieve positive returns, um, which are have a lower correlation to equity and bond markets. So in these choppy times, it could be a good option. But for some investors, choppy markets are a great opportunity to buy assets at a lower price than normal. So what contrarian opportunities did you suggest? Well, with the uncertainty surrounding the UK with Brexit, investors are, a lot of investors anyway, are avoiding domestically focused UK companies. So I actually selected a um, contrarian opportunity, which would be Standard Life Investments UK Equity Income Unconstrained. As the name suggests, it's a UK equity income fund and it's yielding about 4%, but it has more than half of its portfolio in those small and mid-UK companies, which, if things turn out better than expected, could be a good contrarian opportunity. Thank you, Emma. And also see her suggestions on funds for income, growth and alternative assets in the Investors Chronicle ISA supplement and on the website. As well as picking the right investments, another way to boost your ISA's returns is to limit costs. And a key way to do this is to hold your ISA on the right investment platform that gives you the best value. But this can be easier said than done. Um, So Emma, why is choosing the platform on which it's cheapest to hold your ISA so complicated? I think the main reason, Leonora, is just because platforms charge in different ways. Different platforms have different kinds of um, charging models, and that can actually make it difficult for investors to compare like with like. Um, So what are the main charges you should look out for when choosing a platform? Well, I think there's four main charges investors should consider. Administration fees dealing transactions, fund fees and transfer fees. And um, which is the most common of these fees? The most common is administration fees, but rather confusingly, this is called different things on different platforms. So sometimes it's called a custody fee, other times a platform fee. But basically, it is a charge that the platform, um, you know, levies on fund investors to use the platform. And there can be two main ways this is done either as a percentage of the um, fund portfolios an investor holds or as a fixed fee. So for an investor, um, you know, investing their ISA with funds, which of these two types of charging structures is better? Well, generally, if you have more than £100,000 in your fund portfolio, then it's better to opt for a flat fee provider. And that's because it's going to cap the amount of fees you'll be charged. Whereas if you've got less than £100,000, you could also opt for a percentage fee provider. Um, and are there any other things we need to consider here? Or, Well, I mean, there's also the issue of service that you, um, a platform provider is going to give you because you've got to think about the ease of use of using the, the site and the amount of funds that are available on the platform. So that's something else to consider. Thank you, Emma. And see her survey in the money section in this week's magazine and the website to also see which platforms charge release to trade funds and which overall are best value for ISAs invested in funds. That's all we've got time for today. But see this week's ISA special issue and the supplement or the website for 40 suggestions on shares, investment trusts, funds and passive funds to help you get the most out of your ISA. Thank you for listening and have a good weekend. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. 
Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.